This is Yudeha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. With me on the show today is Professor Shaul Magid, who teaches Jewish studies at Dartmouth University. Professor Magid has recently published a book on Rav Meir Kahana, delving into a lot of aspects of his legacy and the differences of how we should maybe understand the diasporic versus Israeli legacy of Rav Kahana. Uh, Professor Magid, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first of all, the title of the book, I know it's a long title. Can you just listen to it? The title of the book is Meir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. Okay. And, uh, and, And what's the basic claim that this book is making? Well, there's a number of claims, but one of the basic claims uh, is to try to um, rethink the trajectory of Kahana's career. We usually think, or most people think today, whether in Israel or the diaspora, when you hear the name Eir Kahana, very often you think about his Israeli career. His, you know, he immigrates to Israel in 1971. He founds a political party, runs for the Knesset a few times, doesn't get in, then it gets elected in 1984. And then very quickly, the Knesset moves to pass a racism law to oust his party from the Knesset. And that kind of ends his political career. But of course, the kind of metapolitical career uh, extends much longer than that. My The point of my book is basically to argue that we are looking at Mayor Kahana in the wrong way, uh, the opposite way, that in fact, what's actually more interesting about Kahana's career is his career in America, his influence on American Jewry and his Americanness, the fact that he thinks in American categories and that is, um, I think, part of the reason that he never really succeeds in, his, in, in the Israeli political scene for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is, is that he never is able to translate the kind of American cultural and political categories that he grew up with uh, in America to the Israeli context, which is very different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've been looking at this legacy backwards. Yes, that's the claim of the book. Okay. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you this full disclosure. You know, I grew up a little bit outside of the Jewish world uh, in New York City and what we can call pre-Giuliani New York. And my doorway into the Jewish world really was the Jewish Defense League. Like, I joined the JDL at 20 years old. Uh, I had grown up before then uh, in a neighborhood that was, I, I guess I grew up with mostly Irish, Albanian, Puerto Rican, Black, you know, Italian, you name it, a few Jews, but but we were a minority in the scene I grew up in. And when I discovered the internet at around 19, 20 years old, I somehow discovered the JDL. And I assumed it was either kind of like a Jewish gang or a, a Jewish kind of Black Panther party. Uh, so I joined it. And, um, and that really began my trajectory to, to where I am now. You know, I, it was a couple of years later that I made Aliyah and uh, started learning in yeshiva, serving in the army and getting involved politically here. Uh, but one of the things that really spoke to me uh, about the claim your book is making is that there really is, I, I, I personally do see a value in separating Rav Kahana's political legacy in Israel from the United States. And, and I actually think the the legacy in the United States uh, might be more valuable to us. I, yeah, I mean, I hear that. I, I, you know, 
It certainly is more um, long-lasting than many people think. I think what's interesting is that when you when you talk to people that when you talk to American Jews and certainly talk to American Jewish historians or scholars of American Jewry or American rabbis, Meir Kahana is kind of very rarely mentioned. He's not really someone that seems to have kind of uh, survived the period of time in which he lived and which he lived there. Whereas in Israel, if you Talk, any real conversation about politics in Israel, Meir Kahana very often comes up for a variety of reasons. And I think that the claim of the book is that actually Kahana's worldview, and, and this is, I think this is an important part of, the, of, of, of my understanding of him. There are two pieces to Kahana. There's his worldview and there are his tactics. Mm -hmm. And his tactics of militarism were actually very much a product of his time. He comes into public notoriety in the mid to late 1960s, the culture wars, the race wars in New York City. There was really a lot of, of militancy that was going on in the anti-war movements, in the uh, in the race riots. And in a sense, Kahana really just taps into that. Mm -hmm. But if you separate, and of course, that's what really marginalizes him from much of American Jewry, mm -hmm. is American Jewry's reluctance to really buy into militarism. Yeah, on that point, I actually want to, you know, in uh, Yossi Klein Levy's book, uh, Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, sure, I, I read it carefully. And so he, he makes a claim that I found fascinating, that he refers to the JDL as the most successfully American of all Jewish organizations, because they were the only American Jewish organization that didn't behave as if it was on probation and was willing to kind of go the distance that other minority groups in the United States were willing to go on behalf of their rights or their interests, whereas most Jewish organizations were, to a certain extent, um, functioning within the trauma of you know, previous diasporic experiences. Yeah, actually, I use that quote as a, as a, as an epigraph in one of the chapters of the book um, because I think it's a very prescient quote. So I think there are two things going on. One thing is there are two parts to the American Jewish establishment which Kahana liked to, that he liked to use that term. Whether there whether there really was such a thing as the American Jewish establishment, certainly it was something that that he used. There were two things going on that he felt. Um, the need to kind of seriously revise. First of all, as, as you say, the kind of quiescence of a post-Holocaust traumatized American um, community, many of many people who were Holocaust survivors or Holocaust survivors adjacent, who basically wanted to simply live out their lives in America in a tolerant society in a very quiet way and didn't want to, as Kahana would say, they didn't want to make trouble. And then there's the other part of the American Jewish community, which was, which was committed deeply committed to liberalism as the best path toward Jewish flourishing in America. Mm -hmm. And I think that that although Kana had many enemies um, among non-Jews and among other Jewish groups, I think the primary the primary enemy for Kahana ideologically was liberalism. He felt that liberalism was was going to was going to undermine and destroy Jewish continuity. He, he used the type that he used the term Jewish survival, but Jewish survival, Jewish continuity is basically the same thing. So, in a sense, his whole program in America and in Israel, by the way, is anti-liberalism, and he felt that the Israeli Zionist project fails in large part because it became devoted to a certain kind of liberalism in the left-wing governments that existed in his time, before 1977, of course, um, and Begin's election, that was going to, in a certain sense, undermine 
the the uh, the Jewish National Project. So, in a way, the fight was always about the, the fight was always against liberalism, mm -hmm. and that's something that was actually quite unique, not unique, but distinctive among American Jewry, certainly in the 1960s and 1970s, much less so today. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'll tell you, you know, my understanding is that, is that we're talking about a person who obviously grew up with the trauma of uh, the Shoah, of the Holocaust. And I think most of the people who had joined the JDL initially were the children of Holocaust survivors. Um, and, and perhaps a number of, you know, uh, of radical Jews looking for their Panther movement as well, uh, at least until the JDL took a definitive stance in the Vietnam War. But I, I think what we're really talking about, and I see it in Israel because, you know, in, in Israeli society, I actually see a Kahanism on the rise and not from the people we might expect. I think that uh, as the Haredi population starts to enter society more, um, they essentially become Kahanisti because ultimately Kahanism here is a combination of Haredi Torah with nationalism. Now, it could be shallow nationalism, it could be deep nationalism, depending on the person, but I think when you combine the Haredi understanding of Torah, the, the Haredi approach to Torah with nationalism, you ultimately arrive at something, either Kahanism itself or something very similar. Uh, so I think that's something we need to take very seriously because it's about to become a much more powerful force in Israeli society, even if it doesn't self-identify as such. I think it's a, it's a good point. I would I would say, and I talk about this in the book. I don't talk about the Haredim, but it's a really good point, and it's a good thing to think think with and think about um, that the Kahanists in Israel today, among the national religious community, are really, to my mind, not Kahanists. They're really neo-Kahanists, and I'll tell you why. They're neo-Kahanists because most of them grow up in the uh, Datilu Umi educational system and are influenced by the kind of romantic, mystical theology of Rev Cook in one way or another, and I'm talking about father and son. And Kahana, interestingly, was really uninterested in Rev Cook at all. You see, he very, very rarely mentions him. Uh, there's one picture of him and Svi Yehuda Cook together from, I think, 1971, when Kahana went to visit his son who was learning in Mirkaz Arab. But other than that, the, the Zionist vision, the, the cooking and Zionist vision is something that Kahana had no real interest in. Or understanding of, maybe. Well, I don't know if he didn't understand it. He certainly wasn't interested, and he wasn't interested for the following reason. Kahana was interested in power and conquest. He wasn't interested in the kind of cookie messianism, and he wasn't interested, and this is really an important piece of it, he was not interested in giving validity to the, to the secular Zionist entity. The whole cookie and twist, the whole dialectical twist of the cookie and um, uh, of, of, the, of the cookie and worldview, is that somehow the secular Israelis or secular Zionism, or with Svi the cook, the secular state, is itself a manifestation of divine will, and in a sense becomes part of this kind of unfolding messianic process. Kahana rejected that. Secular Zionists were racist, according to Hana. The secular state had no value whatsoever. It didn't matter if it was Yassi Sarid or Geula Cohen. So there's a there's really a breach between Kahana's worldview and the worldview of the Cookians, which then brings me to the point that you raised about the Haredim, because in some way, the Haredim are more sympathetic to Kahana's rejection of secularism than the Cookian Zionists, many of whom today call themselves Kahanists. Right. I, I'll tell you, it's actually the teachings of Rav Kook that made me not a Kahanist anymore. When I first arrived in Israel before the army, I went to go study in a yeshiva called Mechon Meir. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. 
I know. I actually studied in the yeshiva across the street on on stay with Meiri. Ah, you say okay. So I, I'm a teacher there now. In fact, I'm I, I plan to be teaching there later today. And it was actually, you know, it, it was actually at a certain point, I guess, in my learning, and uh, and specifically the philosophical works of Rav Kook and the teachings of Rav Tzuyut as well. That at a certain point, I just realized I'm not really a Kahanist. You know, like that, that's not where I fit. Like I don't really agree with that. First, in terms of my attitude towards things like the state, and and ultimately also my attitude towards Palestinians. Although it would be a couple of years until I really began to engage with Palestinians in a serious way, or understand their story or their needs. But but I remember that um, I also this is also taking place. You know, when I was in yeshiva, it was during the Second Intifada. So I think uh, a lot of what happened then in the mainstream national religious, what we'll call the Khardal or Kukian, whatever term you want to use, uh, I think the second intifada following the Oslo years uh, really radicalized a lot of young people in the, the Tilumi world. And we started seeing stickers and t-shirts, uh, you know, posters, Kahana Tzedak, like Kahana was right. And part of it, I think, is just the reaction to the violence and the vulnerability that a lot of young people, we're talking about a lot of young people who had experienced, you know, their neighbors or teachers or, or family members killed. And there were, this is a time when there were a lot of bus bombings and drive-by shootings, etc. Um, but, but I think also one thing that at least on the Israeli side uh, needs to be taken into consideration is that Rav Kahana developed a Torah position on Palestinian issues that not many Chachamim did, meaning whether or not his position was correct, I think that no one else really bothered to do that work uh, with, you know, bringing all the sources and making a strong halachic argument for this is what the Kadosh Baruch Hu wants us to do regarding the non-Jewish population here. Uh, he, he's one of the few and, and one of the most well-known uh, to actually take those positions. So I think that despite the fact that Rav Tzvi Yehuda, for example, or Yehuda Cohen Cook, was very much against any uh, building uh, Jewish communities or Jewish homes on private Palestinian land. He was very against any expressions of discrimination or, or racism against Palestinians. You know, there's a famous story of Rav Tziyuda seeing um, yeshiva students doing something inappropriate to, to a Palestinian worker and then writing a letter to the principal condemning such behavior. You know, so despite the fact that Rav Tziyuda's attitude towards Palestinians was very different from Rav Kahana's, I think that at the time of the Intifada, the second Intifada, um, a lot of people just adopted the Kahanist position as default. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is worth making the, the following point, that um, the, the, the cookie in view of things that, uh, that we're living on the cusp of some kind of seismic change and that part of this change is going to happen not as the result of our own agency, but simply the kind of the the the, the unfolding the unfolding eschaton at the end time. I think that what happens is that what as long as the state is doing its job um, managing the conflict, there's really no reason for kahana. In other words, the militarism is not necessary because the state is basically doing the bidding of the Kahanist. It's only when the state begins to move away from that position, and you have that in Oslo, for example, and you have that again in the Second Intifada, when the state seems to be losing control 
of the Palestinian population, which is what happens in the Second Intifada. At that point, um, history doesn't seem to be going the Cookian way. And when that happens, what ends up resulting is that the Kahanist militarism begins to become more um, more reasonable or more relevant for that particular community. So if the violence, be, the violence comes in not necessarily as a response to the violence on the side of the Palestinians, the violence comes in because the Cookian vision of the unfolding redemption seems to have been somehow uh, averted in some way. So I think there's something deeply psychological that's going on within that within that Dati Lumi community where the Kahanist approach, which is really about, again, power and conquest, becomes much more relevant when history doesn't seem to be on its side. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, the shallow understanding of the Cookian view that a lot of young people have. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with what we do here, but a lot of the work that I've been involved with over the last dozen years or so is bringing Jews from the national religious community, uh, from some of the more hardcore communities, some of them are would identify as students of Rav Kook, some Rav Ginsburg, some maybe even Kahanistim, bringing them to engage with Palestinians. And uh, that's really based on uh, my belief that these Jews, uh, the Jews who I would say are most fully living Jewish history, like consciously, and all of the ramifications of that, really should be the peacemakers, should be the our, our face towards Palestinian society. And I think I think I'm coming from what you would call a Cookian perspective that, you know, the what we call the national and uh, religious sectors of Israeli society kind of merged, uh, but are missing the universal third leg. And, and I think there's a lot of discussion we could have about how to unearth that universal component. Uh, that will ultimately help us be the full expression of all three forces. But one of the things that I think needs to happen is to really push Jews from the national religious sector, whether they be students of Rav Kook, Rav Kahana, Rav Ginsburg, or whoever, uh, into engagement, uh, positive engagement with Palestinians and vice versa. And I think that the contradictions between mainstream Israeli society and Palestinians are much more than the contradictions between the national religious and Palestinian society. No, I think that's true. And look, I think that's fantastic work. I guess that, um, you know, if I want to channel for, for a minute, um, uh, you know, Kahana, since I'm, you know, we're talking about the book that I wrote, uh, and I totally support what you're doing, and I think it's very important, is that Kahana's response would be, that uh, you're naive to think that the Palestinians are willing, going to be willing to give up their national aspirations, mm -hmm. even if you make their life better, even if you give them, you know, as he would say, washing machines and electricity. In other words, Kahana's point is that the Palestinians are just as Zionist as the Jews are. So it's always for him a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in a certain sense, what you're trying to do is to break down some of those barriers that separate uh, the Palestinians and the, and the Israeli Jews, that's really largely a result of the two of them living in close proximity to one another, but having no real personal relationship or, or understanding to break down those barriers, or understanding, right, the understanding of the narrative of the other. Uh, but, but I think, I, I, I guess the question would be, what is, what is the Jewish side willing to relinquish of its own narrative Mm -hmm. And what is the Palestinian side willing to relinquish of its own aspirations 
in order to, for there to be serious progre progress towards some kind of reconciliation, which would then actually prove Kahana wrong? Well, I, you know, if that question is posed to me, I can't speak yeah. for Palestinians. I can only speak of my experiences with Palestinians. And I would say that, you know, as I said before, I think the contradictions between what the national religious are after, or at least the students of Rav Kook are after, versus, um, and what Palestinians are looking for, in order for us each to feel like we've achieved some kind of happy ending, uh, are different than what mainstream Israeli society might want. Um, mm -hmm. I personally would like to see Israel from the river to the sea as a, in a one-state solution, a one-state solution with full equality for Palestinians. And I would like the Jewish character of the state to become a lot softer than it is right now, but at the same time a lot deeper. To the extent that every Haredi child will notice the Jewishness of the state just all around him, whereas non-Jews or even Jews with less of a Jewish education would barely notice it's Jewish. Uh, because I think right now what we have is a European style nation state with very hard othering Jewish decorations. I think those Jewish decorations are too Jewish for the Palestinians and not Jewish enough for the Haredim. And, and Haredim and Palestinians are very important because I think they're two of the fastest growing populations between the river and the sea. And even though I foresee uh, the next generation of Haredim basically becoming Kahanistim in some sense, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be in conflict with Palestinians. Meaning what, what I really mean is they're going to adopt that position more broadly, that kind of identity. Uh, but Palestinians don't have to be the enemy. No, I hear you. I mean, it's very interesting. I share that. I share some of that. I, I certainly... I certainly have have given up on on two state solution. I, I think it's uh, in from from my perspective a bit of a waste of time to continue to talk about it. I think there is one state now, and there probably be will will be one state for the foreseeable future. And I um, I also think that it should be a state where Jews and Palestinians, or Jew I should say Jewish Israelis and either Palestinian Israelis or Palestinians from the from the West Bank certainly and Gaza of course is a different story we can talk about should have totally equal rights I think there should be a constitution that should uh, you know ensure the equal rights of all this you know, should be a state of all but citizens at that point uh, you know you talk about a, a, a softer Jewish state you know I'm not convinced it has to be a Jewish state at all I mean it obviously will be in because the majority or you know the, the equal numbers the equal number will, will be Jews and and that state will have a Jewish character to it and Jews would certainly be uh, uh, free to practice their religion or not practice their religion however they want but I, I think that one of the things and, and I'd like to hear hear you on this right because according to Kahana um, and this is an interesting point to your to your to your statement just now, there's no such thing as a Jewish democracy. There's a Jewish state as a democratic state. That's his view of it, right? Because for him, democracy was an American-style liberal democracy. Everyone that lives in the state is equal. Mm -hmm. And for it to be a Jewish state, according to the way he understands it, there's not equality between Jews and Arabs. The Jews have priority um, legally, certainly and culturally and politically. Uh, and I think that in a way, um, Although many people would say, oh, you can have a Jewish and democratic state. I think 
as time goes on, more and more people are starting to realize that maybe that equation actually doesn't work. So which side are you going to fall on? So obviously, traditionally, people on the left were saying, oh, well, we just want a democratic state. People on the right were saying we just want a Jewish state. And the question is, is there a third option? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, you know, in the direction that you're moving. Right. I'd say I want a revolutionary state. Yeah, so I do, too. Right. I think that question really requires us to do something most Israelis who are involved in this conversation aren't doing, and that's define what a Jewish state means and define what a democratic state means. So for me, if somebody asked me to define democracy, I would say a system of government that empowers people to be able to influence the structures they live under. Right? That's clearly not exactly what we have here right now. I, I would even argue it's not what you have in the United States. I, I'd say the United States yeah. is really a corporatocracy where corporations and lobbyists own the politicians people vote for and the average lawmaker or president, governor, whatever, is much more beholden to those who fund his campaigns than those who vote sure. for election day. So it's an illusion of democracy. Everybody gets, you know, an election day to go and exercise their civic duty. But I don't think that American politicians are really beholden to their constituencies in any real way. And uh, so I, I would like to see Israel become a participatory democracy, which I think is a lot more democratic than representative democracy and doesn't uh, allow for certain interest groups to really just buy the politicians and control the politicians uh, and make policy. Uh, and I think a participatory democracy also makes demography much less of an issue. I mean, I, in general, I don't feel comfortable with the conversation about, you know, how many Jews, how many Palestinians, how many this. I, I think that in most contexts, it would just be perceived as, and rightly so, it's like a, a very problematic discussion. And uh, for some reason, it's been legitimized here, maybe because for a long time it was a uh, an argument for why we should rush towards a two-state solution. But really, I think that demography shouldn't matter. I think that we should say, this is the state we want to have. This is a type of society we want to build. You know, we've waited thousands of years to come back to life, rebuild Hebrew civilization and do it in such a way that will actually be an inspiration to the rest of the world, a, a light unto nations. And that means getting it right. And um, I think Israeli society is developing. We, we still have some ways to go. I would argue actually that Palestinian society is much more politically mature and much more ready for certain conversations in Israeli society. Uh, yet at the same time, we have to get there. What you're saying is very interesting to me. Um, I made this argument in an essay that's coming out soon, which was a response to an essay written by somebody on about the crisis of liberal Zionism mm -hmm. in Israel and America. And I think the, what you say um, in a way is precisely why I don't consider myself a Zionist. Yeah. I think that I share a lot of the vision that you just articulated. I think the problem of bringing that vision to fruition is Zionism as an ideology. And I think perhaps Israel has to move beyond Zionism yeah. to rethink the ideological structures upon which the state was founded. Now, Zionism was kind of necessary and played a very important role in the in the formation of the state and the early articulation of the state. But I don't think given the realities on the ground that Zionism is really the best way to continue to manage uh, the reality of a, of, of, a, of a citizenry that is basically half Jewish and half non-Jewish. Right. So, so I think we're in agreement there. I think Zionism was a very successful Jewish liberation movement that achieved remarkable feats. Yet at the same time, I, I would argue that Zionism hasn't really been relevant as 
It hasn't been relevant in the sense of propelling us forward since 1967, for sure. But as you said, I do think Zionism has become the dominant ideology of Israeli society in the same way that liberalism is a dominant ideology of capitalist societies and Christianity was a dominant ideology of feudalist societies. And yeah. I think you're right that we need to break free of it, meaning we need to progress beyond Zionism. Just as an example, you know, America was founded on an ideology of manifest destiny. And that is no longer the ideology upon which America exists. Now, ideologies can come and go. States have to have to be able to kind of rethink and recalibrate and revise their own kind of raison d'etre and sense of being. Now, of course, there are plenty of white supremacists who still believe in manifest destiny, but I don't think that generally speaking, manifest destiny is what is really underlying the American society. And I think manifest destiny, which actually shares a lot with Zionism in many ways and is drawn from, you know, biblical models is I think Zionism may, you know, maybe has to go the way of manifest destiny. Well, in any case, I think right now, a lot of the educational work I'm involved in is really training young Jewish leaders to formulate a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while at the same time cleaning up its mess, especially on the Palestinian front. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's great work. It's very interesting that if that movement, if that particular movement, and I don't mean movement in terms of like a collective movement, but if that physical movement can happen from within the national religious camp, that would be, you know, that, that would be kind of fascinating, interestingly ironic, but also fascinating because that's in a certain sense where a lot of the passion and the energy is. So right. if that passion and energy can then be moved in a different direction, I think it can have a tre tremendous impact on the society. I agree with you. I think that the the sector of Israeli society with the most revolutionary potential is the national religious, but there's still a block and that block needs to be hammered away at. So just to, to, just to ask you a question for a moment. So given given Mechon Meir and given the kind of world that you live in, what's the reception of those kinds of ideas? Uh, well, Baruch Hashem, I have a lot of street cred in that world. You know, I was uh, an activist for a long time as uh, my own views, you know, and I don't think there's anything I believe in or stand for or teach today that's a departure from the Torah of Rav Kook. I still consider myself very much a student of both Rav Avram Yitzchak Akoin Kook and Rav Tziuda Akoin Kook and, and my my teachers are their students and uh, and I do check with them on a number of, you know, new ideas I have every now and then. So I, I'm not outside the camp. I haven't become like a Rav Yol Ben Nun or a, or a Rav Amital. I don't, I don't think that I'm perceived that way. Uh, I'm still very much within and I still educate my children in those schools and, um, you know, raise them in those communities. I, I also live in the West Bank. I live on a mountain uh, very close to Ramallah. And of course, my Palestinian colleagues know that, you know, they know exactly who I am. And I think that's part of what gives me legitimacy to do the work that I do, that I'm representing a different sector of Israeli society. And I'm not a quote unquote diet settler. Like I'm a real mitnachet. Like I'm really coming from that world and I'm really ideologically driven by that Torah. You know, I, I do get pushback from what I would consider maybe the more, um, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to say shallow, but I can't think of a better word right now. I think those who don't fully understand that Torah uh, sometimes give me a lot of pushback, but it's okay. I, I can handle the pushback and, you know, we have a lot of interesting conversations and part of my job is convincing Jews like that to actually give it a shot and come meet a Palestinian who lives in a village just down the road from them. 
and tried to understand his story, his narrative, uh, his understanding of himself uh, without just casting him as our fantasy antagonist and vice versa, of course. And, yeah. and so I, look, it's, it's challenging work, but it's interesting work. I haven't been placed in Kherim or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm still considered to be on the same team as the others, you know, my neighbors and teachers and colleagues, etc. And it's very clear that everything I'm doing is for the sake of advancing the redemption process. If I could, if I, was, I mean, it sounds fascinating. I, I think that the way I see it from where I am, and obviously I'm not, I'm not there, I'm in a different place. There, there's a real crisis happening now in liberal Zionism, particularly in America, but maybe in Israel too, with the death of the two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of um, a hand-wringing among liberal Zionists to figure out, well, what do we do since, since we've tied our wagon to the two-state solution for the last 40 years? Mm -hmm. And that simply is not going to happen. So what are the new ways of thinking about uh, about the about people who are committed to liberal values, but also also committed to Zionism, where are they going to go and what are they going to do? And I think that it's a big it's a big crisis within the American liberal Zionist community of thinking sure. about what the next steps are. So I think you know for you to say that that you want to re envision a kind of you know Rav Shagar famously wrote an essay called Religious Post Zionism, mm -hmm. and in he has a he has a particular articulation that I don't think is actually so so far from yours in many of um, in many ways especially in his new book british shalom where he has this great dialogue with eliezer shvai of the hebrew university about the the kind of the fate and destiny of religious zionism i think that religious zionism I, you know I've, i always say to my students and people that i speak to that i think the more the most interesting and creative work that's going on today in zionism is among the mitnachlim and that's, you know, I'm specifically speaking about Rev Shagar and his students and Rev Fruman and his students and that that world, which is really trying to re-envision a notion of Eretz Yisrael as a non-chauvinistic state. Now, I don't know where you, you know, you particularly fit in with the Shagar-Fruman group or whether you see yourself a part or not a part of it. But I think, you know, they're also they're also coming from Rev Cook and still remain very attached to Rev Cook, but yet they're starting to rethink the way in which Cookian Zionism has become manifest in the last 50 or 60 years. But I agree. I'm, I'm not part of the Reformant camp, although I have many friends and colleagues who are. I, I don't consider myself a dogmatist either, but I definitely am more comfortable in the more, we can call it the Kav. You're familiar with the term Kav? Yeah. Okay, so I'm more comfortable. Well, I'm, I'm more comfortable with the students of uh, Manitou, if you're familiar with Manitou. Yeah, I know Manitou, sure. Sure, so I think, in fact, I think it's Manitou's Torah that really squares the circle between a lot of the devoted students of, of Rav Kook and, and the Gushnikim or the students of Rav Roman, et cetera. I think Manitou is able to really kind of uh, help bridge that gap. But, but I, like, I'm still of the opinion that the most authentic or the most... Um, accurate interpretation of Rav Cook's vision uh, could probably be found with Rav Tao. Mm -hmm. And the question mm -hmm. is, what space does that make for you know, the non-Jew in a Jewish society? Uh, what is Israel's role on the world stage? Um, I mean, I, I think that part of our problem is that we're still thinking like Zionists. We're still thinking about the Jewish people as an object with a problem. We still think of ourselves as endangered. Whereas I think to become true Hebrew universalists, 
we need to think of ourselves as a subject with desires. Like what kind of world do we want to see? How do we want to influence human civilization? And how do we use the material conditions created by Zionism's success in order to impact the world in a very positive way? I think that that's fascinating. And, and, and if you should succeed in that in that task, I think what you would have done, what you will have accomplished, you will have accomplished many things. But one of the things that you will have accomplished would be that you will have proved Kahana wrong. Perhaps, yeah. So let's get back to your book. I'm sorry, we only have a few minutes left, but I, I, yeah. I do want to promote your book because I think it's important that people at the very least have a deeper and more sophisticated understanding of who Rav Kahana was, what he stood for, and what his legacy might be, both for diaspora Jews and for Israelis. Uh, w one of the things I, I saw you mention is that he had a major impact on Jewish identity in the diaspora, among young diaspora Jews. Uh, can you yeah. speak to that a little bit? Well, you know, it was, it, I think what, what Kahana came to realize was that uh, religion in a formal sense, meaning, you know, orthodoxy or religious practice in whatever form, was not strong enough in America to be able to attract a certain sense of pride in the American Jew for religion was not actually um, a dominant. And so in a, it, it, I think what, one of the things that the JDL does, it's really the JDL more than being an organization that was about protecting Jews in outlying areas and those kinds of things. It was really about identity formation. It was about creating some kind of a context for the Jew to be proud to be a Jew. And part of the pride was not putting on tefillin and keeping Shabbos and keeping Kashrus. That was the kind of Chabad model. And, you know, there's a very interesting way you can take the 1960s and 1970s and the Chabad model versus the Kahanist model. For the Chabad model, it was a return to religion. That was the way in which the Jew feels Jewish and feels proud. For Kahana, it was basically simply about um, standing up to physical threats. In other words, defending oneself. Or, or, or maybe we could say taking responsibility for Jews in danger. Like yeah, that. taking the responsibility for Jews in danger. In a sense, what Kahana wanted to do in the beginning was he wanted to take the kind of revisionist Zionist model of the muscle Jew that goes back to Max Nordau. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to transport that Zionist vision into a diaspora context. Mm -hmm. Not that the person was going to be proud to be a Jew because he was a Zionist, but the person was going to be proud to be a Jew because he's willing to fight back. Mm -hmm. And and that was extremely compelling for a generation of, of young Jews, many of whom, as you said, were children of Holocaust survivors, but who had also been radicalized in the new left in the 1960s, who then became kind of disillusioned with the new left once it took an anti-Israel stand after 1967. And the way, the way Art Waskow puts it in his book, The Bushes Burning in 1971, they went from being Jewish radicals to radical Jews. Mm -hmm. And Kahana was the radical Jewish alternative mm -hmm. for many of those people. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I know for me, you know, look, I grew up with tough guys and a lot of the Jews who had grown up in the same circles I grew up in were very closeted about their Jewish identity because it was perceived as as making them vulnerable. Meaning they, if people knew they were Jews, people would think of them as either less tough, less brave, less dangerous, you know, in a world where you had to be dangerous. And so for me, you know, I was always very open about my Jewishness, even if I wasn't too connected or knowledgeable. But uh, but once I got involved in JDL, I'll, I'll be honest, like I wanted to wrap tefillin in the morning, uh, like much more so than anything Chabad had ever said to me, like meaning JDL was much more influential in getting me to put on tzitzit and wrap tefillin and ultimately move to Israel 
than I think uh, Chabad could have been, just because it connected me to a story. I think as a Jew living in New York, you know, there are a lot of options. There's Eshet Torah, there's Chabad, there's Yeshiva University. There, there are a lot of different types of Torah available. But what I think spoke to me about JDL was really that it connected me to a story. Uh, it connected me to a people. It, it made me feel like I'm responsible for other Jews, etc. Um, I didn't really come in with too much of a political awareness, although I, I was against the two-state solution only because A, I never thought of the land as belonging to anybody else, and B, I knew, you know, from the time I was in junior high school that if a group of Italians offer you peace in exchange for your money, you're, the answer is no. Uh, it's better to fight and to lose than to give up what's yours. So there was something that always bothered me about the two-state paradigm uh, from that perspective. And uh, when I, obviously when I joined JDL, that was probably amplified. But I, but I definitely, you know, I have to have akaratotov. I have to give credit where credit's due. I probably wouldn't be where I am or who I am right now if not for JDL. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, it, again, I think that it's interesting that you say that. And, and my my book is not a, about the JDL per se. There have been other books written about the JDL. Some really good books. A book by Janet by Janet Dolgan back in the 1970s sure. on the JDL. I have it. Yeah, um, she's an anthropologist, and she does some fascinating work about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that you know, interestingly, the the things that Kahana was talking about in the 1960s and 1970s, I mean, you came into it a little bit later in, term, in terms of the JDL, sure. were issues that most Jews were not really that concerned about. For example, he writes a book on intermarriage in 1974. There weren't a lot of Jews that were writing books about intermarriage in 1974. Intermarriage was not considered to be an existential threat to the Jewish, to American Jewry in 1974, the way it is in 2021. Yeah. But he saw that that the continuation of liberalism and acculturation of American Jewry was going to create a situation where there wasn't going to be any reason why a Jew would necessarily want to marry a Jew. It just didn't make any sense. Um, the idea that somehow anti-Zionism was anti-Semitism. Again, that was not something that was very prominent in the late 1960s and 1970s. Kahana saw that it was. Now, I don't think he was, I don't think he's necessarily right. I don't think he was right then. I don't think he's right now. But I'm just saying that on that question, that, that anti-Semitism on the left is worse than anti-Semitism on the right. He was saying that in the late 1960s with the rise of black nationalism even though he had a very complicated relationship with the Black Panther Party. On the one hand, he saw them as being anti-Semitic. On the other hand, he basically models the JDL according to the basic dictates of, of the Black Panther Party. He was an anti-integrationist the way Malcolm X was an anti-integrationist. Uh, so I think that in a way, what Kahana, Kahana fails because he's not able to gain control of his radicalism. And the radicalism eventually destroys him. Now, radical movements very often implode. You can see that with radical movements on the left throughout the history of, of, modern, of the modern West. But the question is always with radicalism, does the destruction of radicalism itself in some way move the dial such that the situation and the society has changed as a result of the radicalism that doesn't succeed? Mm -hmm. And I think that what I argued in the book is that Kahana fails in Israel because he's too American. Mm -hmm. He fails in America because he's too much of a radical and radicalism always will end up failing. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, I, and this is a kind of speculative claim that I'm making that 
he really sank roots deep into the American subconscious that still remain intact today. The American Jewish you know, subconscious. Yeah, the Jew, the American Jewish subconscious, right. The fear of the left, the fear of liberalism, the insecurity that America was not is not going to protect the Jews, the sense that somehow maybe Israel is the alternative, even if Jews continue to live in America, the, the, the anxiety of intermarriage, all of those kinds of things, in a way, remain deeply embedded in the American subconscious and come out in various kinds of ways that are not militant the way Kahana was, but I think, you know, expresses that anxiety. I'll give you one example. I mean, I'm writing about this now. There used to be, it used to be back in the early part of the, in the mid part of the century, 20th century, there were all these books written about Judaism. There were all these like popular books like Milton Steinberg's Basic Judaism, Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers, right? Things like that. Today in America, what are Jews writing about? They're only writing about anti-Semitism. Every, every week, every, every other week, there's a new book coming out about anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. That anxiety is an anxiety that Kahana said was inevitable back in the 1960s and 1970s. So it's, it's almost like nobody's writing about Judaism anymore. Everyone's just writing about anti-Semitism. But what, what's the anxiety of anti-Semitism? Jews are not threatened in the streets of America. There have been horrible anti-Semitic acts, Pittsburgh and Poway and other places like that. The anxiety about anti-Semitism in America today among Jews is all about Israel. It's all about the anti-Zionism of the left mm -hmm. and so whether that's really anti-Semitic. Right. So first of all, I think we need to understand anti-Semitism systemically, just as we need to understand racism systemically and not just, you know, this guy hates Jews or this guy wants to fight Jews or whatever. But getting back to something you said, you know, if I were to try to identify one major failure or mistake of Rav Meir Kahana and the JDL in the United States, I think it would be attaching his cause to the American right as opposed to the left, as most movements like the JDL that weren't Jewish did. You know, I often ask my students if they think Magneto is to the right or to the left of Professor Xavier, if you understand the reference. Yeah, I know. I'm, I, I always thought Magneto was a Kahana figure. Well, you know, it's interesting because Marvel Comics claim that Magneto is based on three people, uh, Che Guevara, uh, Malcolm X, and Rav Khan. That makes sense. He's a composite. But the interesting thing is that Malcolm X is to the left of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, the Black Panther Party is to the left of the NAACP. So one of the things I think we need to take into consideration when looking at the American Jewish position is that in the Jewish community, the more militant one is on behalf of Jewish rights or Jewish issues, the more right wing he is on the internal Jewish spectrum. Whereas in the black community, it would be the opposite. Like in the black community, uh, somebody taking the Kahanist position or the JDL position on black identity would be to the left of the establishment. Sure. And, and I think a lot of that just comes down to the fact that Jews either are or are certainly perceived as a privileged group in the United States as, as white um, or at least white passing. Whereas the oppression that other groups experience is very obvious and visible and overt. And I think in many cases, Jews have been pushed into conflict with many of these other minority groups. So when it becomes black rights versus Jewish rights, it becomes obvious that, you know, the Jewish rights have to be reactionary. So, so I would say that, you know, had a group like JDL, I don't know if JDL could have done it, but, but had there been 
a radical Jewish group, you know, in the 60s and 70s, with a deeper understanding of revolutionary theory and and uh, how capitalism operates and, and how systems of oppression work, maybe they would have been able to develop a theory on anti-Semitism that would have allowed their struggles to intersect with the struggles of other minority groups in the United States. Yes, I agree with you. I think the other issue um, which talks about the leftism of the na black nationalist movement, although that's not true with the Nation of Islam, by the way, which really is very much to the right on a lot of on a lot of issues, is the issue of class and the issue of poverty and the issue of Marxism and the way in which many black intellectuals understood Marxism as a as the best political solution to a systemic racist society that was keeping that racial minority in its underclass. Jews in America never experienced that because by the 1950s, they were already upwardly mobile and they were already moving into the uh, into the middle and upper middle classes. So the Marxist critique of, of the, the materialist Marxist critique of society never really resonated to Jews after the 1950s, 1960s. It certainly did in the in the teens in the 1920s when the Jews were living in tenements and working in sweatshops. Then they were socialists. But once they actually broke through the kind of glass barrier economically and moved up the ladder, socialism became less and less attractive. But African-Americans, and this is true of the black nationalist movement, it's true of people like Angela Davis, who was a member of the Communist Party, they saw they saw Mar they saw they saw the black revolution as a Marxist revolution, which is going to create a classless society because they were the underclass. Right. So in that way, that was part of the leftist pull, I think, of, of the black liberation movement that didn't really resonate in the Jewish liberation movement that Kahana was advocating in the 1960s. No, I agree. And I think part of the problem is that in many ways, anti-Semitism is more complicated, meaning I don't think we're pushed to the bottom of society. We're pushed to the middle and we're often used as a buffer group. You know, we're the oppressor that the oppressed see. Um, you know, like in feudalism, for example, you know, the peasants would take their anger out on the Jewish tax collector and never make it to the nobleman's castle. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, that and that's been the, that's been the case for Jews from before the emancipation. In, you know, where Jews were always in a certain sense they were they were put in the middle between the peasants and the aristocracy. And it continued after emancipation as well. So I think I think that you're right. Now, Mike, the, the question is whether that still exists today in America, and I'm not really sure that it does. I, I'd even argue that it exists on the world stage with the state of Israel, but that's a longer conversation. Yes, that's for sure. Um, but I think in America, Jews are now not really placed in the middle the way they were in the 1960s, for example, when James Baldwin wrote his famous essay in 1967, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white, his basic position was, yeah, of course, you know, we in Harlem, we hated the Jews, but we hated the Jews because they were the landlords and we hated the Jews because they were the shop owners. And we, and in a certain sense, we hated the Jews because they were becoming white. And yet the Jews at that time was still the middlemen between the corporate white society and the impoverished black society. So in a certain way, they were they were embodying that kind of middleman dynamic that you say, but I'm not really sure that that's the case anymore. But I guess the question is, if um, if one could develop a more scientific understanding of how anti-Semitism operates, would Marxism have more pull? Have more pull to Jews who are looking for Jewish liberation? Yeah, I mean, you have some really interesting examples for someone like someone like Yehuda Ashlag 
mm-hmm. who was a Marxist, basically. I mean, he was a communist, openly. And you have a number of different Jewish figures who were deeply kind of embedded within Jewish society that were. And I think that Rev. Cook himself has a complicated relationship with socialism. Not sure. with communism, but certainly with socialism. And the idea that somehow free market capitalism was going to be the best way for Jews to flourish not really clear that that's true. I mean, that's what Israel has become. It's gone from being a socialist society to being a free capital, free market capitalist society. For now. And it, you know, it has one of the largest rates of child poverty in the Western world. It has one of the largest discrepancies of, you know, wealth and poverty in the Western world. That's, you know, given where Israel came from, that's kind of remarkable. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you categorize Israel as part of the Western world. I would, living here for 20 years, I see it more as a, a very Semitic country that tries to be white, or at least with a ruling class that tries to be white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I consider it to be part of the West in terms of, uh, in terms of ideology and certainly in terms of, uh, of economics and in terms of power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that, you know, what we, you can argue that, but I, I, I do think that when looking at Israel and kind of evaluating the kind of economic and political structures of Israel, even though you're right, it's like, you know, deeply embedded in the Middle East um, in a lot of ways, it still really is a reflection of the West because Zionism is a Western ideology at the end of the day. I would even say that Zionism as the ideology of the state of Israel is one that conditions its citizens to want to be part of the West. Exactly, exactly. Right. Which and is I think ironically one of the barriers to us being able to reconcile with the Palestinians. Exactly. I think you see that most prominently in the 21st century uh, with the phenomenon of globalization in Israel and how that actually makes Israel in a certain way, uh, you know, part of global capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the truth is you and I could keep talking for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you very much. This was a this was a great conversation, and you know I really didn't know much about you before, but I know a lot more than I do now, than I did before. And it, it's it's a fascinating project, and I really wish you all the success in the world. I appreciate that. I'd be happy to send you links where you could learn more. And in the meantime, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can find your book. Well, my book is available now on Amazon. I, I know because I somebody just emailed me yesterday that it's not yet, as far as they know, like it's not a Stymetsky's bookstore in Israel. So it's not there yet, but it certainly will be. But it certainly is available through Princeton University Press or it's available on Amazon. And there's a bunch of podcasts that I've done and some reviews that are coming out. So I urge you to read it. And, you know, I think, I, you know, I think you'll be surprised. For those of us with either a soft or hard boycott of Amazon.com, where can we find the book? Princeton University Press, just to buy it directly from the press. It's the same price. Okay, you're Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime soon. And I wish you success teaching, writing, you know, uh, Professor Shel Magid, where can listeners learn more about you? Uh, well, you know, you could you could uh, you could email me at shaul.magid at dartmouth.edu. I'm on the Dartmouth website, or you can PM me from on Facebook. Okay, great. This is Yuda Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. This is the Next Stage Podcast. You can check out the show notes for this episode by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage six three.